Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm coming at you today with my first episode of the year 2020. Really excited about this year ahead. Personally, I think it's got a lot of great things in store for all of us, and we've got some great things in store for today's podcast episode. A lot of fun stuff teed up. I'm going to start out by talking about the String Dusters, show this past weekend, Saturday, January 11th, at the Mission Ballroom here in Denver, Colorado, and how the scene at that show helps to further explain the context of today's bluegrass music world. And also, I'm going to dig in a little bit to some String Dusters history, specifically here in Colorado, and try and look at the shifting trajectory of our band through the early years and how some big decisions we made around the music and the business led us to this big show that we just had this past weekend. After that, I've got a full-length interview with the incredible Holly Bowling. You may know her from her solo piano interpretations of Fish and the Grateful Dead or her work with the incredible up-and-coming band Ghostlight. So stick around for that. All right, let's jump right into it here. 
This past weekend on Saturday, January 11th, the String Dusters had our biggest headlining ticketed club show to date. It was at the Mission Ballroom here in Denver, Colorado, and it was a really a great night for us. 4,000 fans, and you know we've honed our vision so carefully over the years of what the music can sound like, the production, the look and feel, how everything is presented, and this was really uh, a great proof of concept of all of that coming to life and then that fan band energy exchange on full display where we're doing our thing, you guys are really participating in that and it all adds up to really elevate the music and the whole experience. And we were really feeling that. Trout Steak Revival opened the show, great band from Colorado. I've got a short segment on the next episode of the podcast with those guys. And we also had two very special guests joining us for our second set. We had Michael Travis and Jason Hahn from the String Cheese Incident, drums and percussion. Two incredible musicians, incredible people, just love those guys, and they couldn't have added more to our sound. And it's interesting, you know, with the sit-in thing, you're always trying to find a way to feature the artists that sit in with you, whether they're a singer, a songwriter, instrumentalist. But the interesting thing about these guys is they really play essentially a supporting role. It was our music. We did do Restless Wind and Bali Monster, two big cheese songs, but Otherwise, we were playing our stuff, and these guys added so much. What a couple of badasses. I really hope that we get to do that again, and it sounds like we will. I had a lot of questions about how we got this iteration of the String Dusters plus String Cheese rhythm section together. You know, once we had the idea and the show was booked and it was on to the music, I kind of got with my bandmates and we went through our song list and everybody submitted a few ideas for what they thought would be songs that were beefed up, improved by the presence of the rhythm section. So once I had that master list, I narrowed that down into a set list, sent it back to the guys, a few tweaks, and we we had a pretty cohesive list together. Sent that to the cheese guys about mm, two, three weeks out from the show once we had it honed in. They're learning all that stuff on their own time, and then we got into the Mission Ballroom actually two full days before the show. We were there on Thursday doing a production rehearsal with the band. We try to do a big one of these every year in some capacity before we go out on tour just to get the lighting rig dialed in, to work on any kind of technical stuff, try new pedals on our pedal boards, lighting cues. We get to go out in the audience and listen. We actually get to be a part of figuring out how that live sound is presented because you know we're on stage hearing ourselves through our in-ear monitors so much of the time and the sound that you guys are hearing is something really different than what we're hearing so for as much time as we put into the music it's important for us to have these opportunities to actually hear what it's like coming out front of house we were doing that on thursday and i should mention similar process with the lights you know we're on stage it's hard to see what the look of the show is from where we're standing. So we're out there working with our amazing crew, huge props right now to Drew Becker, our front of house sound engineer, does such an amazing job. Jason Gutworth, our LD, amazing job on the lights. And Carol, who's on stage with us running our monitors. These guys all work so hard and do a killer job. 
So this is our chance to really get with them and share with them our ideas for how we want the show to be presented. So we got all that honed in. Then we were back on Friday. The Cheese Guys got their sounds dialed in from about 10 to noon. We showed up, had lunch with them there at the venue, went over the set list, talked through transitions, sort of had a a preliminary version of what would eventually be our production meeting that we always have an hour and a half before we hit the stage. And then we were on stage for about four hours rehearsing with them, trying things, playing through most songs only once. Honestly, we played a few things twice, went over some transitions, and then we had to learn some of these more functional aspects that we take for granted as a band, like counting off songs, how to do visual cues, how to end songs, who will wrap up the trash can. The trash can is the term we use for like all that frenzied noise at the beginning of the set or at the end of a song, and then you're looking at Travis, one big drum hit, and the whole thing wraps up tight. So these are little mechanisms that you evolve over years as a band, but because of all that shared experience and because our musical vocabularies are similar and we have a lot of overlap in the aesthetic of our music, these things came together really, really naturally. And then we finished rehearsal that night, had a good hang at the venue. And overnight, I tweaked some things based on what I heard in that rehearsal. A few things didn't work as well as some of the others. And then based on the songs that did work well. We had these ideas, okay, well, Rise Sun, for example, was a late edition, wasn't on the initial set list, but made the final cut, and I'm glad it did because it sounded so good as everything did with those guys on the rhythm section. And the proof was really in the pudding that night. The show went off, the energy was really tangible, the music was elevated to the next level, and that's the goal of our concert experience. So huge thanks to everyone who took part in that, and you can check out the recording on nugs.net. So as I was looking back on this great mission show this past weekend, it really got me thinking about our journey as a band, our trajectory with the music and the business, and essentially how we got to where we're at now, and how much of that was actually influenced by some early experiences that we had in the state of Colorado. You have to remember when the String Dusters were starting out, 2006, 2007, there was very little precedent for a bluegrass band like the String Dusters to go out and play this type of show in clubs with this type of production. Yeah, there was Yonder and String Cheese and Leftover Salmon was starting to have its resurgence and we were observing some of these things, but we were also influenced by a whole other world and that was the traditional bluegrass world. And you know, it's funny, hindsight is twenty twenty, and sometimes I look back and say, how come we didn't formulate this current vision of the string dusters at an earlier stage of the game? But that's just not how these things unfold. You know, we were focused primarily on the music at that point. And we came out of the Nashville scene, and a lot of the bands that we aspired to were certainly in a more traditional bluegrass world. And nobody knew who we were. So we kind of had to take every opportunity that we could get. And in 2007, really early in our careers, we won three awards at the International Bluegrass Music Association Award Show. We won Emerging Artist of the Year, Song of the Year, and Album of the Year for Fork in the Road. And this was a really big deal to us. This was a world full of musicians that we really looked up to, and it really set us on this course in a more trad world. So we had these gigs coming our way that paid well, but didn't necessarily offer us a lot of upward mobility down the line. Now, we weren't necessarily seeing this whole picture at that time. We were taking these gigs because, again, they they paid well. You know, they were 
bluegrass series at performing arts centers and things like this where fans would buy a subscription to the whole season. So they were essentially coming to see more of the genre than a specific band. So there were some big expectations there. And that can really be hard on young artists who are trying to find their own voice. And because we had won those awards and because we'd played with some different people of note in the bluegrass world, these opportunities became opened us. But there was really a question there about how good was this for growth? How good was it for business? And then probably even a bigger question of, was this where we wanted to be playing? Was this what inspired us? You know, Despite the fact that we really look up to some of the artists in this world and also to the reality that some music is really best presented in that type of listening environment, it really wasn't right for us. It wasn't what inspired us. It wasn't where we felt like our music came to life. So how did we figure all this out and how did we ultimately change as both a band and a business? Well, there are a few major factors at play. And I wrote about one of them at length in a big article on my blog called Bluegrass, question mark, aka the Bluegrass Manifesto. I wrote this in April 2011. And a lot of the article talks about traditional bluegrass versus modern bluegrass and how the traditional fans aren't necessarily so accepting of modern forms of music and how we were starting to feel the effects of this in our career as essentially a more modern original band that came out of the traditional world. And the article went viral. And believe me, nobody was visiting my website before I wrote this piece. But, you know, I think that's just proof that it was giving a voice to a sentiment that a lot of people already had. And people were feeling the effects of the traditional world wanting to sort of pull back the reins on the fact that the music was evolving. So that was sort of the body of the article. But the inspiration for the article came after we went out and we played three shows opening for Railroader. We played 930 Club in D.C., Theater of the Living Arts in Philly, and then the Music Hall of Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and we were blown away. And we saw our music come to life because of the energy of the fans, their participation in the music. And we got a glimpse of a concert environment that we thought would create a lot of energy and promote a lot of growth for our style of music. So that was a huge turning point for us. We really made some big changes around our business at that point in 2011. And it was definitely a risk. You know, we had to take a step back to take two steps forward. And we got paid less and we had to convince promoters that our style of music could exist in this club environment with this type of production, that we could sell hard tickets, that we could build it one fan at a time, and that these fans would be coming to see the infamous String Dusters, not because they were subscribing to a series. So a lot of big changes around our business at that point in 2011. But the reality was that the seeds of these changes were really planted, I think, on some of our early tours as a band when we came out to the state of Colorado. And after this mission show, it was funny, I was you know, just thinking about the progression of all that. And I was doing some organizing at my house and I came across some early String Dusters financial records and they document our early tours to Colorado. So here we go. April, 2016, Durango, we got paid 750 bucks. In Lions, we made $1,200. I remember we played at like a little community center kind of dance hole. And there it was, it was like the people were getting down. We played in Boulder, 
Pretty sure that was a house concert at Beth and Gus's, $640. Then we played Glenwood Springs. I remember that one because we played at the Hotel Colorado, which was one of our early sold-out shows as a band. I don't remember if it was that one or a subsequent visit. And then back to Denver for Swallow Hill. And then this next one is amazing. This is in March of 2007. We actually went from Texas. Uh, we played the Cactus Cafe, got paid 500 bucks. Eric Johnson was sitting in the front row. I remember that. And then really interesting, the next night, we got paid $3,000 to play at a bluegrass festival in Argyle, Texas. And I remember it really clearly. It was like, okay, this is the gig that's going to pay for the run, but is it the right thing for us? You know, And it's hard to say no to $3,000 when the next night we played in Oklahoma City at the Blue Door. We reminisce about this all the time. The band outnumbered the crowd. We got paid $50, it says it right here. And we played two sets for four people. Try to get your head around that. Humble beginnings, people. Played the next night in Santa Fe. And then it was up to Salida. Got paid 600 bucks there. Durango, $1,200. Then Peonia. And I remember this was a classic funky little theater. This great eccentric promoter, this guy Monk, who still to this day comes up to the signing table at Telluride, super proud that he had discovered us way back in the day. And another show at Swallow Hill at the end of that run. But the Peonia show was a great example. It was like, man, people are getting down to the music. And we just had this taste of an environment that we really thought brought our tunes to life. And we thought, man, if, if we can do this, we can create a lot of excitement around our music. And, you know, these were tiny shows and we were living the dream, couldn't have been happier and just doing our thing. And so the mission was a great full circle moment to think back on these early trips. But they really had a huge influence on us. And if you look online, there's actually a short documentary called Four Days of Infamy that covers these Colorado shows and gives you a glimpse into the the early days of Duster touring. And it wasn't a very sophisticated operation, but you know, these are the events that really shape you in whatever your endeavors are. And there's a great life lesson in there. You know, anytime you feel that deep inspiration and you're pushed into a space where you're questioning the status quo and all of a sudden your vision is refined and you essentially start dreaming bigger than you had before. Those are the moments that your intuition will lead you to if you let it. And that's the stuff that you really got to listen to when you're trying to elevate your game and figure out what you're all about. And that's essentially what happened with the Dusters over these early years and hopefully still today and on into the future. All these different experiences shape our vision for what's possible around our music and the way that we present it. And just incredible at the mission to kind of see everything come full circle with Colorado being so influential in those early years and now being such an incredible stronghold for the band. And I really have to say a huge heartfelt thank you to the Colorado music fans, specifically the amazing fans here in Denver, who have supported us all these years and, as you can see, really helped us on our journey to figure out where it is exactly that we're trying to go. Okay, that's it for our Duster history lesson today. Boy, I found some really, really classic memorabilia along with these notebooks, and I'll be sharing some of that on social media as well as here on the podcast. But let's move ahead to my interview today, which is with the incredible Holly Bowling. 
She's a piano player who performs in a solo context quite often and is also an increasingly prominent member of the jam music community. A really, really unique musician. Really enjoyed my conversation with Holly. So without further ado, here we go. here on Inside the Musician's Brain, and my guest today is one of the most unique members of our extended musical family. She is an incredible classically trained piano player who has made a name for herself transcribing and performing the music of Fish and the Grateful Dead on solo piano, and she is also a member of the rocking up-and-coming band Ghostlight, Holly Bowling. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so glad we got a chance to do this. You are here for your mission shows with Ghostlight opening for Green Sky this weekend. Yes, very excited. Yeah, I was there last weekend playing with Cheese, incredible room, and the Denver faithful, I'm sure, will wrap <laughs> you guys up in, in true form. But uh, this is awesome. I've been really excited since we made the connection and figured out that I was going to get a chance to sit down and pick your brain because you are a true one of a kind. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your background. I know you're classically trained and that started when you were pretty young, but not necessarily any career aspect to the music until fairly recently, correct? Yeah, I mean, definitely not along this pathway. So I started playing piano when I was really little in kindergarten. And, um, and learned to play by ear. And um, yeah, I played classical piano for years. It's what I went to college for eventually. And, uh, and so I was you know, living in that world, very, very much immersed in that world for most of my life. And at the same time, I was listening to music that was uh, entirely not in that realm. So my like parents... what kind of stuff? So, like, growing up, my parents... My mom had classical music on around the house. Um, but they, my dad also really loved, like, The Dead and Little Feet and Bruce Hornsby and um, stuff like that. And my mom did, too. So there was always this, like, dual strand of music that was just permeating every minute of my life right and so then when I got older I was still um, playing classical piano and like very in love with playing that music but it's never what I would go to listen to so you know there was a time in my life when I was spending hours and hours a day in the practice room working on Beethoven sonatas and then you know skipping class and missing exams because I was running out to try to catch as many fish shows as I possibly could and so it was this very like I felt like I had this rift between the these two worlds in my life of these if I was Tom Marshall I would make a rift joke oh right? terrible wow I did not even mean to do that I'm like hanging my head in shame right now no. um, but yeah so I just had these two really different things and those worlds never met right like the people that I played music with in school didn't understand this weird thing that I was going to do and the people that I knew of fish shows didn't relate to sure. any of the music I was playing and so eventually later down the road um it's like those two strands of my life finally collided in a yeah. way that finally felt like very much like home to me. So was there any like improvising component early on or was it really classically focused um, as far as the music that you were playing? 
Um, as far as like when I started doing fish songs for no, Ensemble Piano? No, no, before or? all that. Um, not a lot of improv. I mean, I, I definitely like learned some principles of improvisation. Um, I had a few teachers throughout the years that, that dove into that stuff and, you know, taught, taught us how to, um, you know, read a lead sheet and, and had us work out simple improvisations over chord changes and stuff. But it wasn't the main focus of what I was doing, right? Like I was definitely hardcore in the classical camp and like, you know, the part of yourself that you injected into the music that you were playing wasn't taking a solo or choosing sure. which notes. It was choosing how you played each note and how you shaped a phrase and how you delivered, you know, the, essentially the words on the page. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so um, that wasn't like what what I was working on as my craft. Right. Right. It's something that I had like an understanding of, but hadn't spent the hours and hours that I would have if I was growing up as, you know, a jazzer. <laughs> so, but eventually... Like you said, worlds collide. And I want to talk a little bit about the whole Tahoe tweezer thing because it's so interesting. It really <laughs> is. And so that was like 2014, right? When that all came together because the show was 2013, but your rendition of it was the next year. Yeah, it took me about a year to, to get that thing together. <laughs> so you started shedding on that and learning it and transcribing it immediately after you heard it, right? Yeah, basically. I went to the show. Um, I live in San Francisco, so it was like a three-hour drive home <clears throat> the next day. And I think when I left the show that night, I, I went back to the place we were staying and listened to it three times before I went to bed and then listened to it the whole way home the next day over and over again. Or, right. And three and, times through is like three hours, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a solid chunk of time. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, when I get into a piece of music, that's what I do. I listen to it obsessively. It drives everyone around me crazy. I usually have to put headphones on because they're like, this is number 17 <laughs> on the same song. You have to stop. <laughs> but that's probably part of what makes you such a great musician. And it seems like it's interesting hearing you talk about your classical background because there's an attention to detail there. There's an articulation factor. You know, I come from a pure improvising background. You know, when I learned to play banjo, it was bluegrass based. And I don't think I ever saw a piece of music. But and so you're sort of really focused on what the notes are and the phrases and how to cover chord changes. But you had this whole articulation thing, like you were saying, just around um, presenting classical music. Yes, it might be notes on a page, but how you interpret and express all of that is a whole art form unto itself. Yeah, I mean, you can say the same line a hundred different ways, the same words, and it's going to mean something completely different. I mean, think about like an actor delivering the same line. Sure. You could make it mean a million different things. Absolutely. Right, and music is the same way. So it's not like classical music is just like a recitation of something that's already been written, right? Like right. there's a reason that people will have like their top 20 versions of the same song from different performers because each one is saying something different with the same, uh, like the medium underneath it is, is the same and the music yeah. is part of it but like what you choose to do with it is a is a big part of it yeah and no that's that's cool and i hear that of course as i'm sure everyone does and you're playing it's and it's just so interesting how it all kind of came together in this transcription form and getting back to the tahoe tweezer thing so you this was the first song first extended improvisation that you decided okay i'm gonna learn how to play this thing on piano. Yeah, I mean, I had like fooled around with learning various fish songs and, and just like I would any other, 
you know, songs of bands I'm into, like you sit down at your instrument and, sure. you know, you figure out the chords and whatever. Um, it's the first time I had ever taken a piece of improvisation and decided to write it down note for note. I know that there's a long tradition of people transcribing solos uh, in the jazz world or anywhere else and learning from that. Um, I was aware of that. It's not something I had ever sat down to do. So, um, yeah, this was kind of a, 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 you know, jumping into the deep end of the pool to start with a 37-minute thing and not just go for one instrument but go for them all. But, um, and so did it, did it start with one little piece of it and then kind of got more to the point where you said... I have to do this whole yeah. thing justice. I mean, you know, you know how it is. You, you have uh, music rolling around in your head. You pick sure. out little bits and pieces of it on your instrument. And then um, I went from having these little fragments and being frustrated when they'd stop and just kind of felt like, well, maybe I should just fill in the gaps and string it all together. And at that point, I'm going to have to start writing it down because it's just too much stuff to retain right. and like organize in your head. Right. Right. And I'm so curious to get a little bit more into how those jam transcriptions come to life. But before we get into that, I think it's really interesting. In your career, this was a really definitive moment. This was like the thing that you said to me earlier is like the door opened in front of you and an opportunity was suddenly there that wasn't there before. How did that all play out? I mean, did you have an idea that that's might, that, that might? No. Co- no, okay. No, not at all. Like this was just seriously, it was like my nerdy little pet project that I was doing. Like I don't, I'm not really a TV watcher. I, I get, I don't know, I get bored and need projects. And um, I just, I had a lot of time on my hands at that time. And it's what I would do, you know, staying up drinking coffee way too late and and sitting there with headphones on until three in the morning, basically working on a puzzle because it's sure. fun. You yeah. Know? And over the course of a year, you yeah. said this whole thing kind of came together. Yeah. And like once I got far enough into it, then it's one of those things where you can't walk away. Like right. when a certain amount of it is done, you have to finish it. And every time you think you're done, you're like, oh, no, I could make this better. I could change this. This isn't quite right. You know. And then how did the opportunity to perform this thing come about? So it was really funny. I, I was just doing this for me. My husband was like, oh, you got to put this online. You should like record, you know, record a video of you playing it and put it up there. And I was like, no one cares about that stuff, right? There's like <laughs> five people out there that are nerdy enough to be like, oh, this is cool. Um, turns out the fish world is actually full of really nerdy people. Hooray for us. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I put it up online and... Uh, it just it got more traction than I expected, and uh, I I played it before the uh, run of fish shows in San Francisco that was at the same time as the Giants winning the World Series, which was just like a crazy time for me. Uh, so played it where? Uh, just at this little bar down the street from Bill Graham. Okay. You know, it was more a thing like a bunch of my friends were in town and they wanted to hear it because they knew I'd been working on it. And we were like, ah, oh, we'll just like they have a piano there, we'll just take it over and. You know, and then it, it turned into me receiving, um, you know, an email from a guy I had never met before that was like, I, I work in the music industry. I think you should make an album of this stuff. I want to help you with it. Um, and it turned into gig offers coming in and just this whole, yeah, like I said before, it was just a, a doorway opened and every chance I had to make something out of this and, and chase this dream further, I just went for it. That's so know? cool. So gig offers come mm-hmm. in and you have to figure out what you're going to play at these yeah, gigs. Yeah, it was funny, man. I was like, cool. So, I mean, I did this one thing. I guess I need to learn some more songs. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what what was the next move? Like in terms of learning more material, was you going to extrapolate this idea of transcribing um, jams? No, and was I that mean, a very natural, you know, sort of path that you followed? I did a couple more of those. I've only done a handful of them total. Those things are super labor intensive. Um, and I go a little crazy when I'm doing them. It's like it plays into the most meticulous, detail-oriented parts of my brain, which can be super great. And also just you start to go a little nuts, you know? <laughs> but there's another side to it where you'll transcribe kind of like bits and pieces of jams, little hooks, melodies, things like that. Yeah, for a while I was doing these things I was calling jam teases. It's just like, you know, when, when there's... Uh, uh, you know, a long improvisation, but there's one part of it that becomes like, that's the defining theme of that jam that becomes famous within the community of people that follow Fish's music. And you could sing that little riff and anyone, you know, who knows that piece is going to be like, oh yeah, I know what that is. It's like the hook. Yeah. Except for it was made up on the spot and still can tell you the date, which is a really cool thing about this community. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so the funny thing about all this is it started, okay, let me back up. So I told you I came into this uh, playing music that really didn't have any improvisation. And I was super into Fish and, and other bands in the scene, and that was really, like, where I fell in love with improv. Mm-hmm. And then the first time that I put those two things together and did a Fish song on piano, I didn't put any improvisation in it at all. Right. I transcribed their improvisation and left nothing. Like, I didn't... I mean, in my mind, also that thing was perfection. I didn't, I didn't want to mess with it, you know. <laughs> um, but I very much came at that project from a, a standpoint of like my classical background, right? I was thinking about like the symphonic reductions that people did back in the day when there's like a big orchestral piece that they would reduce down to something for like a string quartet or a piano player or whatever it is. Like I wanted to do that, but in the modern context of a rock band to a piano. Sure. And then as this thing kind of evolved, like I did the jam transcriptions, I did some jam teases, I did some versions of um, Fish's really like tightly composed songs, like Taste and stuff like that, where I yep. was really interested in like um, the the interplay between the rhythms and the different instruments and how to represent that on an instrument and all these like little problems and, and the things that made me fall in love with their music, figuring them out on my instrument. And then I kind of got bored of that and, and became more comfortable with... Um, this whole interpretation of Fish's music on piano and the next place it went was like, well, why don't I just open this stuff up? Like, the best way to be true to this music isn't to just play what they played. It's to, like, use that music as a springboard to have an open canvas and let the music show up in whatever form it wants to show up that night. And that's really, like, where my focus has gone with the solo stuff more and more. So that was sort of the platform for you to get into improvising. Yeah, and okay. I, I vividly remember the first time that I that like it clicked in this format, like the first time I got lost improvising, um, yeah, in the solo piano context, yeah. like really lost, like the kind where you're like you know tapped into something else and it's almost like high and everything. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Sure. I've had plenty of releases of emotions playing classical music before, too, like very, very strongly. But it, 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 
uh, it's the first time I had tapped into that same feeling when I had no intention of what I was going to play. That's so, that's so cool. That's to me. That's what I was trying to articulate earlier when I said, you know, you're bringing all of these elements of your classical background into the fold here in a way. You've got, you know, this idea of symphonic reductions, which is fascinating. I mean, how exactly do you decide, you know, what parts of there's the music is so complex and there's these four different brains, you know, referring to fish, of course. And so you've got this one skill of figuring out how you're going to articulate that with two hands and a keyboard, but then also, and, and sort of implicit in that is all this articulation because that's what makes the music become compelling and I, I heard you say in an interview that you sometimes only have a lyric sheet in front of you um, as opposed to like written out music yeah you know because the expression is the important thing with music you know whether it's a written piece or whether you're improvising and I just love that how all these things sort of come together for you and I'm so curious, like when you're doing the transcription thing, that's a lot of heady decisions to make about <laughs> what what part do you play? I mean, you essentially are listening for like the predominant melody lines, whether they're on the guitar or on the keyboard, and then covering sort of rhythmic and bass elements with the left hand, but you can't do it all, so it's just, yeah. it's a lot of decisions to make. I mean, I can't physically do it all, but also it would sound like garbage. You know, you could probably find a computer that's smart enough that you could feed all of this stuff in and it would, you know, send back, you know, every note played mechanically and it just, like, it's too much information. It would be right. too busy. It, it, it might be a faithful reproduction of the notes that were played, but it wouldn't be saying what the music was actually saying. You know right. what I mean? And, so, and if, there's a, if there's a good synergy going on, like a great jam, for example, those four voices are really weaving in into one thing. Yeah. And so it's a matter of sort of sensing and distilling that into something that can be performed by one person. Yeah, and there's a lot of decisions in there too that like, you know, you even with the jam transcriptions where I'm not improvising, like I could redo it and it would sound completely different, right? It's like kind of like if you're shooting something you know, on a film set or, or taking a photo or whatever, there's all these different things moving around. There's all these elements in the photo and you could shoot that same thing in a million different ways, depending on like, you know, what do you put in light? What do you put in darkness? What are you going to bring into the foreground? What's out of focus in the background? Like how, how does that stuff all move together? Yeah. You know, is your depth of field changing as the thing goes on? And so it's, yeah, it's like, it's funny. It's like, a f I try to, in some ways it's like a, faithful, accurate reproduction when it's this jam transcription kind of stuff versus all the improv that I do. But in other ways, like even that, every single person that would take that on is going to do it a different way. And yeah. even, even if I did it again on a different day, I would probably make different decisions. So it's right. still like, it's, you know, shooting this thing through a lens of my musical brain or whatever it was thinking that day. And, and what comes out the other side is not the same as what went in, you know? Yeah. It'd be so, different for everyone. I've yeah, I've never I've never tried to transcribe more than one instrument at one time. <laughs> I'll have to give it a shot. But I commend your efforts, and I think it's so cool. And that's how I heard about you for the first time. And as I was sort of doing a little research on the side leading into our conversation, <clears throat> I just asked a few people informally. You know how how'd you first hear about Holly Bowling? You know, and that really you know put you on the map and. Obviously, 
like any deep musical journey, you know, you, you got all these cool skills and all these sort of ideas and this sound, this, this, this aesthetic. And now what are you, what are you into these days? Like, what are you, what are you working on? What are you focusing on? I know ghost light is really kicking and I want to talk about that, but you know, from a, from a musical standpoint, is it more writing, improvising? What, what are you into these days? I mean, ghost light's a really big part of how I'm spending my time right now. for me to have two different platforms to continue to like explore different avenues of improvisation one of them where it's just me and a a stripped down instrument with you know no effects no pedals no volume knob it's just me and an acoustic instrument yeah um which is like utter freedom and also like you know the freedom to screw it up entirely like there's there's no like leaning back and letting someone else take the reins for a while or having a dialogue with another person or you know, if you're short on ideas, hearing what someone else has to say and then being like, oh, that sparks something in me. Like, that's just what's in your brain. Let it out, (laughs) you know, which is like the coolest thing and also the hardest thing sometimes. Um, But then at the same time to get to go um, and, you know, Ghostlight is a very improv heavy band. Um, And so having that same kind of open-endedness except for like armed with an entirely different arsenal and with four other people on my team. It's yeah. just like, it's super, super fun. You guys are killing it. And it's really cool for me to be able to like flip back and forth between the two. Cause I, I feel like you discover something in one arena and it translates to the other and vice versa. So. Yeah. They're so different. Yeah. Ghostlight is, you guys are sounding so great. We heard you at Borderlands. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, in and, oh my God. It, what's your setup for Ghostlight? Like in terms of, you know, uh, keys and effects and yeah, I have three keyboards up there. Um, I have a stage piano, a Yamaha CP4, which I don't really mess with. I have one effect. It runs through a delay that I use once in a while, but mostly just to make stuff get weird. Uh, usually that's just kept real clean, like an acoustic piano. And then, uh, I have a, a Nord electro that I use yeah. for road sounds. Really don't mess with anything else on it. it does a lot of things that I don't use and then I have a whole bunch of pedals attached to that thing which is sort of my way of making up for the fact that I don't have a synthesizer or anything and uh and so I just feed that thing through all kinds of weird pedals to get like pads and and just weird soundscapey stuff yeah you guys have there's a couple songs on your record that really blew me away I mean, you guys are this unique fusion of you know there's like a rock band base there and you guys can go there and there are songs and you get into that vibe but there's also like this really kind of ethereal atmospheric thing that opening track elegy Mm -hmm. um if only for now beyond before like those ones like how do those songs come to be i mean they're really like i say atmospheric and almost just pure vibe I don't sense that there's a lot of composed stuff in there like how 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 is that music born yeah those are all different um elegy was definitely that one like it it has something behind it you know that was pre-planned okay when we've only done it live a few times but it, it definitely has a structure and um that was something that I originally worked out on the piano and um brought it into the studio when we were all 
working on the record and developing these songs together and I brought in that melody on piano and Tom took that idea and shot it out through like the lens of the band and what he knew everyone could do and was like oh let's put that melody in Raina's voice and it just like you know I was gonna ask about that yeah so that's super cool and it's so cool like getting to work in a band with someone that can sing stuff like that yeah um but then the other songs Tom had a whole idea for the album of it being like um movie scenes and that like some of those instrumental tracks were like the the, the pans or uh, like scene changes like the you know the focus pulls out sure uh, um, so yeah so those ones we don't really play live it's more more of a studio thing um, but I feel like it gives the album this this ebb and flow and honestly like this not to bring everything back to classical music but like there's there's stuff there that I miss that Ghostlight still lets me do and that we all do as a band you know and that the, the album accomplished too which is like this I wouldn't say attention to detail so much it's just like these big contrasts between like crazy heavy you know very dissonant thick just sometimes ugly stuff you know yeah and like dirty distorted heavy and then like super super sweet and yeah, acoustic really gentle yeah. yeah and and the same goes for like not just texture and, and but also dynamics you know like my favorite parts of our live show is sometimes when it comes down to like almost nothing you mm -hmm. know and if everyone's still on that journey with us like that's powerful stuff and that's the kind of stuff I love when I go see live music too right that's the stuff that like really grabs dynamics. you and, and yeah dynamic stuff and just like contrast in general you know like it, it just I don't know I, I get very antsy and bored if we're like you know in the same key for too long or the same you sure. know set of sounds for too long or anything like that and so having something that really can you know ride that you know series of peaks and valleys or just like kind of I think of it like a kaleidoscope you know it's always shifting shape and colors and um just yeah having that kind of ebb and flow and, and change throughout is yeah that's that's kind of what does it for me it's a <laughs> It does it for me too, and it's a success for you guys, and really resonated with me. I, you know, I first listened to the album a while back, but I definitely gave it a bunch of spins as we were getting ready to hang today. And there's so much different stuff, so many varied textures, and that keeps me interested as a listener. You know, it's like you never know what is going to come next. There's a lot of intention in the music, and it's funny when we heard you guys live at Borderlands. You know, it was classic thing where we were just caught up doing our thing and I knew there were great bands on the bill and I knew that you guys were there and we were backstage somewhere and at the same moment it was like all five of us looked at each other and we're like what is th oh it's ghost light you guys were throwing <laughs> down I want to get you to talk a little bit more about your the advent of the band because it's interesting you guys haven't been a band for very long and you you started out by just going into the studio and I want you to just take us through that that process like did you come in with an idea of what songs you were going to play or was there a lot of writing going on at that time you know there's so many things to flesh out as a band everything from what are the songs to what's the vibe you know to how do the instruments work together I mean how did that process unfold for you guys <laughs> Um, I mean, I think all of us were in some senses taking a chance. I don't think anyone knew entirely what it was going to be. Um, but yeah, we, we got together and walked into this studio in Philadelphia. Um, 
And that was the first time the, the five of us that were at that point in time, Ghostlight. Very first time you played together was, was, it was there. It was the first time we played together. It was the first time we had all ever even been in the same room no way. together. Like each of us, you know, like I had played with um, Tom and Raina and Scott. I had never played with Steve, who was our bass player at the time. Um, and, and I think everyone had these overlaps where like they you know, two or three of us had played, but not all of us all together. Did you guys have gigs already booked that you knew you had to get ready for? Or was it more of an informal thing where you were like, let's see how this goes? That's really funny. I don't even remember. It definitely wasn't informal. Like we were all very, you like there was, there was an intention of like, yeah. this is what's happening. And we're, you know, we're going in and we're making a record, but we're also becoming a band at the same time, learning each other's songs at the same time, learning each other as players and musicians and human beings. Like all of that was just all at the same time, all in the same room. Um, and, and so I, that album is really like, a, in my mind, a, a snapshot of that moment in time. How much of the actual record came out of that first big initial session that you guys did? Um, well, we had a few sessions, but it was always, always the same place. And, and all of that was... You had a few sessions before you ever got on a stage together. Yeah, a bunch. Yeah, the, the album was like the the main parts of the album were done before we before we went out. Okay. On the road, I mean, there was a lot of you know tracking and stuff that went on afterwards, but like the the meat of the album was figured out. And then there's a whole other process where you have to figure out how these songs come alive on a stage. Yeah, and that was that was really cool because we worked, you know, we worked on these tunes with each other but it was all in the like intense studio format, you know? And that's the only way we had played these songs together. And then mm -hmm. we went out on our first tour. Um, first show was in San Diego and we didn't have any recorded music out. We didn't have anything to point to, to be like, oh, you should come check out our show because here's what we sound like, you know? It's but nothing. I read that your first show was sold out, the first show you guys ever yeah, played. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And like half the songs didn't even have titles yet, you know? Like it was all still very raw. And I feel like those songs were very much finding their way of like what they were gonna grow into. Yeah, that's really interesting because I feel like most bands chart an entirely different course. Yeah. Where it's the gigs where they figure out their sound. I know that's how, yeah. well, we, we actually kind of started you know, recording, but we, we just learned so much on, on the fly. You know, I mean, I, I feel like all that work was done on stage in real time. And part of that is because, you know, you're getting so many repetitions with music, but you're also in a room with people hearing it and yeah. seeing how they, how they react. Yeah. And we were entirely missing that give and take, right? Like we, all these songs were born of just like us in the room. Yeah. You know? So are you guys, uh, you have a pretty full slate of gigs. You said you're going to play roughly 80 gigs this year. So Ghostlight is a, is a pretty full on entity at this point. Yeah. We're all really committed to the band and really excited about um, where it's gone so far and, and the music that we're putting out. And, yeah. and so how much of what you're doing, you know, we were talking a minute ago about how sort of your focus has shifted and it seems like Ghostlight is a big part of your world now. I mean, how active are you writing for the band and conceiving new music that you guys are going to be taking on in the future? I mean, I think all of us are working on stuff kind of on our own time when we're home. Um, 
I have a lot of time off this month, which I'm very excited about. So plan to uh, you get to hang with your new dog. Yeah, I'm going to hang with my <laughs> dog and my piano and uh, and keep putting stuff down. So what is what is practicing like for you? I'm always so curious to ask different musicians, and you're such an interesting and unique player, writer, musical soul. Like everyone has such a different approach to what practicing is and what improving as a musician is all about. What do you, what do you work on? You know, what is the majority of your time spent doing when you're at home, just trying to move your craft forward? Um, it's really all over the map, just depending on what I'm trying to accomplish. So if I'm, um, if I'm prepping for a solo tour, there's a lot of just like, there's just a lot of technical stuff to remind my fingers how it works, you know? Right. Um, there's a lot of like, play through and and like identify the spots that are not smooth and then just play them slowly and you know ad nauseum <laughs> is there a lot of sheet music for that gig um it depends uh some of the stuff i've written out note for note some of it like uh, like you were mentioning mentioning earlier is just words on a page um some of it is somewhere in between where there's some parts that are you know i know i want to play them a certain way and i don't want to forget what i did because i really liked the voicings or whatever right. so i'll write that part out but then there's a bunch of blank bars where i just kind of fill it in sure um so it's it's all over the map but some of that stuff is it, there's just like a choreography to your fingers that has to be just it just requires hours of time I and bet. if i put it down for six months when i go out again i gotta i gotta get you gotta it back. shut on that yeah. yeah so there's that which is like one type of extremely focused practice that i've been doing my whole life mm -hmm. right um and then there's practice. Uh, sometimes I'll just, uh, you know, I'm learning something new or working on something old and I find something that's hard and then figure out like, well, how can I turn that into the same challenge, but like a hundred times in a row. So, okay. If like a finger movement chromatically in, in thirds going up the keyboard is giving me trouble on a song, then like, let's just do that over the whole piano, you know, top to bottom at different speeds. And then let's put the left hand in that's playing in a different time signature and see if you can still keep it together. And just like, I don't know, I like inventing cool. weird little games for myself that if it hurts my brain, then I need to do that more. Well, and then that's <laughs> a, and that's, that's a great way to correlate some of the more composed written out stuff to the improvising area of things because like uh, that example you're saying if you have like playing a scale in thirds and then playing it in different keys like that's similar i'll do a lot of that you know try and find really mutable ideas that i just learn all as much as i can like in different places on the fingerboard and so you sort of like extrapolate out of the things that you've learned that are in a more composed realm if they challenge you but then you take those ideas outside the box and you make them available to Improvise. Yeah, and it's not like it's not like you know coming up with ideas for improvisation that you're like pre-planning and throwing them out there. It's just a matter of like expanding your toolbox yeah. because if you can play something um, technically, like physically easily, then you have it to do whatever you want with it, right? Yeah. But it has to be fluid and comfortable, and sometimes that means just like sitting there and really getting into this like Zen rhythm of just like over and over again at, at different paces and just like you know sliding into that groove and, until. Yeah you can do it effortlessly, do you, know? you do and you, then you can do something fun with it. <laughs> well, that's the thing is if you can, the more variety that you can sort of pull out of an idea, like again, like a scale in thirds or any kind of scale, or even like a little phrase playing it. If you, if you can take that and move it around, you just start to really open up 
your world and it seems like for someone in your position then you start to get take some of these ideas that have been more built into either classical structures or the transcriptions that you've done and they just become part of your like free musical vocabulary yeah it's just stuff that's flowing around in there yeah I, you... lo- I love taking drummer exercises too and doing those on piano um scott our drummer in, in ghost light always like sends me you know we like nerd out on on That's videos funny. of each other doing ju- weird practice things but i like i like doing okay like my right hand's gonna go in 16th notes and my left hand's gonna go in triplets and one of them's gonna play like a d flat scale and the other one's gonna play in g major and just like see how long you can keep it together because that kind of independence Damn. is just like that's Again, if it holly. makes your brain hurt, you're do like you're gonna get something out of it. I was just gonna um. ask you if you transcribe other instruments on piano, which is you were just saying like you'll do drum exercises, but that's something that I love to do. It just gets your brain thinking in such a different way. Yeah. Like, do you ever transcribe other melodic instruments on the piano? And not really. I should. I'd like to. Um, I haven't transcribed anything on the piano in a while. I, you know, I. I feel like I end up doing a lot of that just to learn new repertoire. Yeah. And so I'm not spending much time um, transcribing uh, stuff, you know, for outside of that realm. Yeah. Um, I do feel like it's a pretty similar process when, you know, when you click into that, like, I need to hear this thing endless on repeat and pick it apart in my brain. It's still like absorbing that. And when you get to the point where you can sing something note for note, like you have it, you know? Yeah. What about, let's talk us for a second about like your mindset on stage. And I was really curious to ask you about this because performing solo is for a lot of people a really daunting task. I know it is for me, you know, I play, uh, you know, almost always with a band and, you know, the string dusters and lots of sitting in and collaborating. And then, you know, I do my solo thing, trad plus and with a drummer who really carries a lot of the load, but What's it like when you're prepping for a show where you're going to play solo? Like, what's that hour leading up to the stage like for you? Um, I mean, I don't do any kind of practicing backstage because I play an instrument that it's, you know, (laughs) it's not easy to carry a second one around. Um, So, yeah, I usually just, honestly, uh, stretch a little bit, try to focus my brain. but yeah, there's no like last minute practicing or anything like that. But you just, I mean, you really got to get in the zone to play solo and it's just, it's you know, that's not like a, that's not really a thing for me. Like any more than I need to get in the zone before I walk on stage with a band. And Cause play. it's just what you do. It's I mean, that was more done. natural for me for a, a, the majority of my life, hmm. you know, like that's what I've been doing since kindergarten. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's so interesting. Um, Let's nerd out about fish for a minute. Can we? <laughs> I just don't get to do this with very many people. What what got you so into it? What what drew you in? I know you you were telling me before that you you were a big fan before you even went to your first show. Yeah, I fell in love with fish when I was in high school, and um, it wasn't even the improv initially that drew me in. It was the composed stuff. Like I don't know. I think I heard Yem, and then I I got riffed, and I just was like, wow. I didn't realize that a rock band could do stuff like this, yeah. right? Because that those songs, too, is very much the, like, you know, it's rooted in, like, it's it's jazz, it's prog. There's some classical stuff in there, too. There's a lot of counterpoint. There's just, like, this level of complexity and, like, you know, 
at the time I hadn't been exposed to other bands that were doing stuff like that. So I was just kind of like, wow, what the hell is this? This yeah. is like, this there, is cool. Like this, I can't figure it out without taking like a lot of listens, which is, that's when I get interested. Yeah. Right. There, that's there when I'm intrigued. A, <laughs> there's a level of composition there that I think for people who haven't walked through that door, you know, they're, they have an impression of fish as this improvisational rock band, but some of the composition, I, I love reading about how they approach the show and the set list night to night. They don't have a set list, but they have a pool of songs yeah. that they can draw from. And I'm, yeah, we I'm, actually do that too. That's a big, oh, thing. Really? Goes like, yeah, we've never actually written a set list. We, we, we just have a list of stuff. We're going to play that night. Our list is much shorter. I've heard that theirs is uh, extensive. <laughs> so how does that go for you guys? So you, you're approaching a show and you, we at what, just, what point do you decide here's what might be on the table? Tonight? Uh, it's, it's often pretty last minute, you know, okay. usually when our TM is like, seriously, guys, <laughs> you got to get this together. Uh, no, sometimes we talk about it earlier in the day, but, um, we just, you know, we have a list of, uh, you know, 10 or 12 songs somewhere in that range. Uh, that we want to play that night and we don't put them in order. And the idea there is kind of, you know, you're, you're predetermining some of the stuff that's going to happen if you do that. Like maybe a, maybe a, a string of ideas don't go the direction that they would have because you know where the end point is and everyone knows that you have to get to this key. So now we're going to move in that direction rather than letting it be like it could go literally anywhere. And a big part of that is how the crowd plays into this i mean you yeah, know yeah i mean to some extent i mean because they're a part of what you guys are doing and whichever direction the music goes is going to be informed by them in some way right yeah yeah probably i don't know sometimes i feel like there's you feel the energy of the crowd but i'm, I'm very much just in tune with like like what are we saying to each other okay on cool stage you know so then who makes the call like who decides what song's next? Um, anyone can. Oh wow. You know? You guys are a democratic jam machine. I mean, you know, it's there's a little bit of uh you can make a call and someone else can shake it off, you know? Okay. <laughs> How do you guys communicate but, that? Do you play with wedges and not in ears? Uh I am on in ears most of the time. Everyone else is on wedges, but even if we were all on ears, we're very committed to the idea of not using uh you know, mics to talk to each other. Okay. Um we really you know, the the whole idea here, like with no set list and, and not being able to say things to each other is, is trying to keep it really open-ended, hmm. trying to talk to each other with our instruments. You know, we do number our songs, so sometimes we'll, um, you know, call what the next song is going to be. And do you actually have like a list with the numbers there? Or yeah. That that's okay, okay. Yeah. And so people get our set list sometimes and they're like, that's not what they played at all. It's completely out of order. And it's like, well, yeah, it's not a set list. Interesting. It's a, it's a call list. And um, for the. But the, for like the... my favorite moments are when we're not, we're not like finding a way to say, like, you know, with hand signals or whatever that like this song is next. It's like those moments where everyone clicks onto the same idea at the same time. And it's like, everyone just drops into the next song. That's right so there, cool. Right? Like that group mind moment when it happens is like, that's, that's the good that's shit the right thing. there. That's, yeah. That's cool. We don't, you know, we, we do play off a set list, but we have an element of that in our shows. That's more like around teases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, 
very often at shows we'll play you know an eight nine song set and only stop two times so there's all these sort of segues and things yeah, yeah. and there's a pool of teases that are you know consonant to this key or that and those are the moments when we all sort of have that mind meld and sense but you guys actually take that kind of a step further and will so will you be playing like in space waiting for the next song to come and then or like and then someone will suggest something and then it starts to move that way or? I mean it can be I, w- I wouldn't even say in space like our our goal in the improv like when it's working really well it's like we're writing new themes together and then someone else builds off that theme and then maybe there's like a B section to it and it you know okay. there's like a whole when it's going Ideally, right? Which it doesn't always. That's the thing about leaving this much up to chance and taking that much risk. Like sometimes it's going to be really, really cool and everyone's going to think the same thing at the same time and you're going to build this new song that's never existed before and then everyone's going to drop into the new song and it's going to have like an arc and yeah. every, everyone's reading each other the same way and it's cool. And then other times you don't read each other and, you know, one of us thinks we're going into one song and someone else thinks we're going into another and it's a messy train wreck. And like, that's the deal. Like that's, that's the like risk versus reward thing. Right. And, and the fans go crazy on the yeah, online man. So forums. We're, we're all okay with that on stage. Right. Like that's, we're all accepting of the, like, we're going to try things and some of them are not going to work. Reward. Right. The coolest thing for me is that like the audience is also on board with that. And the fact that the crowd is willing to like, let us take those risks and they're not going to hate us if we screw it up one time yeah, or two times or whatever yeah. it is, right? But that like, time that you get it right. Right. Because that that's the payoff time. Yeah. Exactly. And so for me, like I would way rather play shows where you take a lot of risk and sometimes it's a really high payoff and sometimes like it doesn't work at all. And if someone's coming to watch the band that doesn't realize you're improvising, they're probably going to think, wow, that was like, that was some sloppy shit. What are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'd rather have that, the, the risk and the payoff than play a, a super, you know, bomb-proof show that's, you know, all the hatches yeah. are battened down and it, you know that you're going to nail it, but it's going to be the same thing. You know? And it's a different, it's just such and a different... And that's not for everyone. Exactly. Right? Like it's, it's, I was going to say, it's a different, it's a really, it's just a different vision. And some bands play the same set list every night and the songs are the same every night, but that's, what, that's what's meaningful to them. And yeah. that's where they bring their voice and their sort of articulation factor to the music, but, you know, we exist in the same world as you guys, but the, the, the thrill for us and for the fans who come to see us, because, you know, the fans in our world, and I'm sure it's the same with you guys, they don't come to one show, you know, they right. come to a bunch of shows, and so they want to see things be different, and it's as much for them as it is for us, and it's just interesting and fun. It's like, you go out on that stage, and it's like, let's see what happens yeah. tonight. You know? I'm, I'm just, like, grateful every day that, uh, you know, fans are willing to let us do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, there's there's bands that I love, too, that I would go just to hear the songs, and they can play the same thing every night. I don't need to see them more than once on a tour, but, like, the songs are so good that, like, that's also enough, you know? Yeah. Well, Holly, thank you so much for hanging with me today. It's been really interesting learning about your whole musical process, and I can't wait to see you and the band again and hopefully collaborate sometime soon and wish you all the best in everything that you're up to and thank you so much for joining me oh man thanks so much for having me on yeah absolutely 
All right, that's going to do it for this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Quick reminder that we are a part of the Osiris Podcast Network. So much great content over there at Osiris. Make sure you check that out. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode that features part two of my amazing conversation with Paul Hoffman from Green Sky Bluegrass and a short interview with the amazing Trout Steak Revival from right here in Colorado. Thanks again for listening to Inside the Musician's Brain. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.